how the Lord expects us to treat one another in the body of Christ. So I want you to turn to Philemon. We're going to read these 25 verses, and then we're going to unpack them. Philemon 1 through 25. And the Word of God says this, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon and our, our beloved worker, and Appia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf doing my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So, if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident 
of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphos, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so does Mark. Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. <clears throat> My brothers and sisters, uh, C.S. Lewis once said these words, mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked powers over his fellows. Aristotle once said that some people are only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no man fit to be masters. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the only one who's fit to be our master, for you are just and a justifier. You are perfect in all your ways. You are caring. You are compassionate. You are constrained by your own mercy, compelled by your own love, and committed to your own sovereign grace. Oh, that we should relish to become your slaves and offer up to you our everlasting service. Allow us, O oh Lord, this morning to learn the true meaning of this difficult passage. Let us stick to the text and let the text speak to us, direct us, comfort us, and reveal to us your will and your ways. In all things, O oh Lord, you have and had a original intent, but because of our sinful hands as they have entered the process, things go awry. Let us not forget that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways much purer than our ways. Let us submit to your leadership and your legacy of perfection. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior and Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen. First question I think we have to address is, you know, what's the purpose of this letter? When you look at it, there's a delicacy here in which Paul writes to Philemon that not only makes it difficult for us to be unsure about the circumstances behind the letter, it makes us difficult to understand the very purpose in which he's writing it. When you look at this letter, Paul is skillfully designing this letter to constrain uh, his friend and to get him to accept his request, but at the same time, it's extremely unclear what Paul is requesting. Paul is slowly building his case by revealing the central concern layer by layer, peeling back his intentions as he prompts and as he prods uh, Philemon's heart here to do what is required. 
But it's also central to this letter that we must see, without a doubt, Paul's desire to see Philemon receive Onesimus back and to receive him as a fully Christian brother in the faith with all the benefits therein. Paul wants him to grant him his freedom. But for us to deal adequately with this possibility requires that we step back a moment and see this in a larger context, this vexing issue of slavery in the New Testament world. Now, many of the commentaries and many of the interpreters that I read this week when it came to this letter uh, didn't really want to set forth the principles. Uh, they felt that Paul was doing nothing to undermine the institution of slavery and that really this letter applies nothing directly to the freedom of Onesimus. They said that the freedom of Onesimus was the last thing on Paul's mind during this time. But I have a major problem with this thoughtless conclusion. And the reason I call it a thoughtless conclusion because there is ample evidence throughout the Old Testament that this had to be a concern on his mind. We find in the Old Testament scriptural evidence that paints a clear picture of God's original intent on how we are to treat one another. God's intent was that we would never enslave one another. Slavery is a man-made sinful institution. But in view of man's sinful nature, God spoke guidelines that he had to follow. Deuteronomy 23:15, you shall not give up to his master a slave that has escaped from his master. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he should choose within one of your towns, whatever it suits him, or whether, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. Deuteronomy 24 and 7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave, or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you purge the evil in your midst. Jeremiah 34, 8 through 9. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zadeki had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. With this information as a backdrop, here lies my problem. If we learn in Scripture that Paul is the Hebrew of Hebrews, that Paul is skilled in the law, I find it difficult, if not impossible, for him not to understand God's heart concerning slavery. I find it difficult and if not impossible for him not to have that knowledge drive his intentions in this letter slash passive directive. Listen to me, what I see here is that Paul is using passive aggressive behavior to command 
Philemon to do what is required, to do the right thing as a Christian. And he wants him to do it in full view of the body of Christ. He's writing a letter so that all the churches will see him make a right decision because of his love for Christ. Paul would rather compel his friend by example of pure Christian love and principles than to order him by authority. Let's look at at this passage by passage and get an understanding of what's going on. We understand that this is a letter and Paul begins with a greeting. He says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. These are the two people who are writing this letter and sending it out. And then you're going to see that Paul (coughs) immediately addresses four different groups here. To Philemon, Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, that is his wife, and to Archippus, that is his son, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. It tells you something again about Roman society that wouldn't allow the church to have a building in society. So churches, Christian churches, were held in the homes of their members. So for him to have a church in his house, to house 50 to 100 Christians, gives you some indication of the financial stability of Philemon. Then he goes on rejoicing over the news that he's heard and the idea of the spiritual progress that is going on. Look what he says. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ, and watch this, and for all the saints. This is important. He's going to speak of saints several times, and when he speaks of saints, he's not speaking to the outside world. He's speaking to saints. He's speaking to those who are in the church because that's hagios. That means what? That means somebody who's set aside for the purpose of God, right? And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. There's a transition going on here, and I think it's serving as a bridge to introduce us to the fact that this book is related to the book of Colossians. There's a relationship between these two books. In fact, I would go as far to say Paul is relying on the fact that Philemon and the others who have read these letters, the letter to Colossians, and have adopted the Christian characteristics that are stated in that letter, now, because of what's happening in this book, they have a grand opportunity to apply what they, believe, they say they believe. A clear reading of Scripture can say that this book is nothing but a case study from Colossians. And we see Paul as he builds his case by how Christians, how saints are to respond in love 
toward one another. He greets and he builds a case. And then you start to see how his greeting relates to two of his other epistles. Look at Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Pastor, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that it is God, personal pronoun refers to God, it is God who's delivered us from the darkness of this world. It is God who's delivered us from the darkness of this world's actions. And it is God that has delivered us from the darkness of this world's way of thinking. And because now we are Christians, we operate in a different light. We operate in the light of the kingdom of God. We have to choose kingdom over culture. We are to operate under the direction and we are to demonstrate the behavior of his beloved son. And since we are redeemed, and since we have been forgiven, and since our sins have been washed away, we are to forgive the sins of others and pass that love forward. Look at Ephesians 1, 15 and 18. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and of the revelation in the knowledge of him, having your eyes or having the eyes of your heart, a personification here, right? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches in his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul here commends his friend for the faith of the saints. He commends him from loving one another. He commends the fact that knowledge and revelation has been attained through Jesus Christ. And now he just asks, apply that love, apply that faith, apply that knowledge, apply that revelation. Show the immeasurable power that is in you from God and Jesus Christ, his son, in dealing with this situation. Paul continues this passive prodding. So he adds a, a note here of his own experience and appreciation of Philemon. Look what he says in verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The word heart here is incredibly important. It's used eight times in this letter, but three times. The word for heart is cardia, but three times Paul uses a different word here. 
Splunk non. And when you speak of this word, you're speaking of an inward feeling. You're speaking of, about how your stomach and your intestines react to love and react to stress. If you can remember uh, falling in love with your wife or with your husband and how uh, incredibly uh, those first few days that you couldn't sleep, you couldn't eat, you couldn't wait to see them or talk to them, and then as you grew more and more in love with them, that even if there was an argument, you were not right physically until that was taken care of. That is the feeling that Paul is invoking here. He's saying, because of the love you have shown the saints, they have been refreshed in their inner being to the deepest level that they can possibly physically be touched. In light of understanding these feelings, we have to understand that many of us, when we think about slavery as an institution, we're thinking about slavery from the antebellum South, right? Uh, slavery that was forced subjugation of a certain race of people. This is not slavery in the Roman world. However, many people in the ancient world were slaves because uh, they were captured in war. Many others volunteered. Some sold themselves into slavery. Slavery in the Greek-Roman world was not racially based. Slaves came from all races, all ethnic groups. And because it was spread over so many occupations, so many social classes, ancient slaves had very little solidarity. If you would stand on a corner in Rome and say, calling all slaves to unite, it would have fallen on deaf ears. The treatment of slaves that they received from their owners, yeah, that naturally varied from those who were good owners and those who were evil owners. But those who were Jewish owners, which is really interesting, they were once slaves, and you'll see that refrain all the way through the New Testament. Remember that you were once slaves so that you would not pass that treatment on. Think about it. Even some Jews became slave owners. But they were held to a higher standard because of what the Word of God said to them. Look at Exodus 21, 26 through 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let that slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of a slave, male or female, he shall let that slave go free because of his tooth. Slave owners' behavior was to be controlled by their understanding and their allegiance to God's word. Exodus 21 and 20. When a man strikes a slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies, he shall be avenged. Now the thing that is really interesting here in the ESV on this word avenge, every other time the same word is translated, it always says kill. There was never any perpetual race-based slavery. Look how Jewish slave owners had to deal with a Jewish slave. Look at Leviticus 25, 39 through 43. If your brother becomes 
poor besides you and sells himself to you. You shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you a hired worker. Remember the prodigal son? As a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. What happens in the year of Jubilee? You had to free him, right? Then he shall go out from you and he and his children with you and go back to his own clan and return the possessions of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Exodus 21 and 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. But you know, once free, once on their own, slaves would find it hard to make a living. Legal freedom was not as obvious a good thing as it would be considered today. Onesimus' freedom would not really necessarily have changed his relationship to Philemon. He would still be obligated to work for him. Remember in the Antebellum South, when slaves were free after their emancipation, what happened? They weren't allowed or weren't welcome into the regular community to be hired as employees. They were forced to return to employment of their previous slave owners as sharecroppers, which was really like a legal not legalized slavery. That's why I think these verses in Colossians 3.22 through 4.1 really set in motion the understanding of slavery and employment and when worked out properly wasn't that different. Look what it says. Bond servants, obey in, every, uh, in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Now watch how he puts 4-1 in here to really give greater emphasis to that last piece. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. But did they do it? No, I dare you to find me in the Old Testament anytime you see Jews releasing Jewish slaves during Jubilee or after six years. And they mistreated their own slaves. Even in our country, slave owners who used the Bible as a foundation and the format for Southern slavery refuse to follow the dictates of Scripture. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We must never forget the New Testament Christians 
were living in a tiny religious group. They lived within a very authoritative, highly powerful in empire. They lacked any political uh, influence. And we tend to judge them, Old Testament people, as if they were living today in Indianapolis. But you always have to look at the original intent that God has for something and then look at the ill-mannered intentional sins of man. Now, I want to give you an example here that comes out of Matthew, deals with a completely different subject, but we're going to end up at the same place if we understand God's original intent for something and the way mankind gets involved and shows intentionality in their sin. Matthew 19, 1 through 9. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up and rested with him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, well, well why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. You see, just like marriage, slavery speaks less of God's original intent than it does the intentional sin of mankind. We must always follow God's original intent and not substitute our own rules. God never endorsed slavery, but he sent his message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to weigh heavy on the hearts of those who are called by his name. They became the abolitionists of their time through God's will until Wilberforce and others could come forth and bring a more forceful argument. Philemon is called here to do what is required faithfully. I want you to look at verses 8 through 11. Accordingly, though I am bold enough, bold here is parousia, and it means having the trait of undertaking risk or danger. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command, which means here to order someone to do something with full authority. So, Pastor, what is Paul authorized to order his brother in Christ to do? To do what is required, yet for love's sake. Now look how he goes after it. I 
prefer to appeal to you, to encourage you to make the right choice, to do what is required, to do the right thing. And then you see, he makes three personal appeals to Philemon here. Look what he does. I, Paul, an old man, that's one, and now a prisoner also in Christ Jesus, that's two. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father, that's three, I became imprisonment. So he is matching him emotion for emotion because we know that Timothy, he fathered him in the gospel. We recognize that Philemon here is also a child of Paul because he brought him to faith. And now he's given Onesimus the same status. And this is really interesting what is placed here parenthetically. It says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Now we recognize that Onesimus, the name means useful. And they used to give that name to many slaves so that slaves would live up to their name. Okay? But here we see Paul and he's playing a word game here. He, look what he does here. He's saying that you were, formerly he was useless, which is our Christos. But now he is used Christos. What made him go from useless to useful? Christ. And he says, but now he is useful to you and to me because he's in the faith. He's engaging in wordplay here. And he says, he goes back to the issue we dealt with earlier and he says, I am sending him back to you, comma, I am sending my heart. He said, I'm having those same feelings again that I had for Timothy when I brought him into the ministry, when I had for you when I worked uh, with the Holy Spirit in Christ as you were delivered and believed in faith in him. I have that same feeling about Onesimus here. He goes on, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that the goodness might not be by compulsion but by your own accord. I love the way he writes this, for perhaps this is why he parted from you for a while. That I might give him back to you forever. That I might give him back to you. That phrase is a peco. And it means I might give him back to you fully compensated. 
no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant. I'm going to give him back to you as a beloved brother. Not a beloved brother, just especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This phrase, both in the flesh and in the Lord, suggests that he's hinting at Onesimus' worldly status as well as his new spiritual status. That now he's become a dear brother to you because he's a dear brother to me. And we all must have affection from one another regardless of background, regardless of culture, regardless of economic status. Once you in, in, you're in Christ, you are a new creature. The old is gone away. The behold, the new has come. Treat him as such. He's a dear brother in both the flesh and in the Lord. That saying this covers all possible uh, elements of his existence now. Look at 17. Shows you Philemon's charge to consider the faithfulness of God. 17. So if you consider me your partner, Receive him as you would receive me. If, keep remembering this sentence starts with if. There's nothing in the text that shows that he took anything from anybody, but I'm going to try to show you what I think Paul is, is referring to. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. This said nothing of you owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. You see, he's getting to the core of the onion here. He's peeled back all the layers here, and he says, it's time to rubber meets the road here, Mr. Metaphors here. He's saying, if you consider me your partner, if you consider me your father in Christ, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you, if he's done anything, now this is where there is nothing in the text that said he has stolen anything. Uh, this is based on anecdotal evidence that slaves from Phrygia were dishonest. It's kind of like in the scripture where it says, well, Cretans are always gluttons and liars. Doesn't mean he did anything. I mean, he did travel 3,100 miles to get to Paul. And you know something? If I'm a runaway slave and I just robbed my slave master, who is the last person I want to meet up with? my slave master's best friend that bought him to Christ? And then look what he says here. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. Look at these words. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. At the beginning, at the salutation of the letter, it says what? It's from Paul and whom? 
Timothy, I cannot prove this, but I've always believed that the thorn in the flesh that Paul had was a problem with his eyesight. Because you see in the latter letters a couple of times he says, I write this with my own hand because he's dictating the letter to Timothy. But he says, I stopped Timothy and I took out a Holy Ghost promissory note and I wrote this with my own hand which in Rome was legally binding that I would have to pay that debt. That's how certain I am of his conversion. And then he brings up subtly, but it's hard hidden. Oh, by the way, if he owes you anything, and you know, if he owes you something and he stole something, he would probably just be stealing his employment from you that he should be there working now and not here with me. But if that's a great debt to you and he owes that to you, I want you to remember you have some indebtedness as well because you owe me your life because I introduced you to Christ. So compared to the debt that you owe me, his debt is nothing. Yes, brother, I want you to refresh my heart. Then, kind of like your mother would say after she's given you a tongue lashing and then uh, allows you to make the decision, comfort, uh, confident in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more then I say, he's saying, release the brother in Christ. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping through your prayers that I will graciously be given. He's thinking about, and I don't see any scriptural evidence that he ever made it there because, you know, after here he was supposed to go west to Spain. But he's saying, clean up the guest room because I might be on my way just to verify how you have welcomed Onesimus back. Ephraim, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ, sends his greeting. So does Mark. So does Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, Pastor, what are the applications? We must see all Christian brothers and sisters as useful in the service of the Lord. We must stand for justice for all and against injustice for any. We must be not just hearers of the word, but doers. We should do what requires what's required if we have faithfully believed what we have been commanded to do. In our English New Testament, you will see doulos, bond, slave. Sometimes you will see the fact that being doulos and being a minister or deacon is really synonymous with 
a slavery unto the Lord. When a person denotes and gives himself to the Lord to be used as there at his disposal, that person becomes that precious property, purchased property of the Lord. And their goal is to serve their master and to be at his beck and call. The sole business of slaves of Christ is to do what we have been told by the Lord. First Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Bought how, Pastor? Bought off the slave market of sin when we belong to Satan. So glorify God with your body. What work does Christ set his servants to do? They serve him. They serve fellow servants. They are willing to literally do whatever it takes, whatever it costs, to minister to those in and outside his kingdom, to devote their time to learning, to listening, to practicing what the Word of God teaches them, to expressing themselves in such a way that they might be useful to the body of Christ because of the great love that God has for them as he chose them before the foundations of the world and that he set them aside for his perfect use. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and pray that we thank you for this time together. Lord, let us recognize that um, we belong to you. Lord, uh, you, you sent your son Jesus Christ who gave his life that we might have life everlasting. So because of that, Lord, let us recognize the importance of giving you ourselves completely, not withholding anything. And not just doing it for form or fashion, but because we recognize the incredible cost that took place on the cross on our behalf. And that is a debt that we will never be able to repay, but we should be focused on playing that debt for that everyone that comes across our And especially the cause of in the household. So we love you and praise you. Thank you for your good time.